Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. A bigger proportion of U.S. adults are living without a spouse or partner, but social policy, our tax codes, workplace benefits, still tend to value families over individuals. And a recent Pew study found unpartnered adults generally have worse economic and social status outcomes. Culture writer and author Anne Helen Peterson recently looked at why. We'll talk with Peterson and hear from you are social norms or policies making your status as a single person more challenging? Borum is next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's expensive being single in America, besides shouldering all the bills and costs of just existing in society, says Anne Helen Peterson. Social policy, like our tax code, Social Security, and workplace benefits, are structured around marriage and family. Peterson's recent Vox piece looks at why so many single people, roughly a third of Americans, are finding it harder to gain solid financial footing. Anne Helen Peterson joins us now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. And I guess a good place to start is the way you start in your piece, which is how you define the term single. Yeah, this is a hard one, right? Because I think that um, there's all of these people in the United States who are single, who don't necessarily get picked up by the census as single. Um, or who like are solo living and are single parents maybe. And like, that's just a different conception than how we think of a single. I think like there's this stereotype of the single person as some, like an old maid almost, right? Like someone who has never married, who doesn't have kids um, when there's a lot of different conceptions or people who are in long-term partnerships, but they don't necessarily live in the same place or the same city or the same state as the person that they're partnered with. Yeah, lots of different definitions. I think the traditional one, as you say, is basically just defined as like not married or living with a partner um, or in a committed relationship, but it really encompasses a lot of people's lives under this umbrella of single. You looked at how uh, the proportion of people who identify as single has grown. Can you talk a little bit about that growth? Yeah, it's monumental. <laughs> you know, you look at the the growth over even the last 30 years, uh, and there's just been a huge expanse. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, divorce is a lot easier, right? Like no fault divorce. So people who have wanted to get divorces who historically would not have, have been able to. Um, and then also the fact that like you can in a lot of places, in a lot of uh, communities, it's it's less frowned upon to have sex before marriage. So there isn't that compulsion to, to marry in order to find immediate stability and also relief from any sort of like moral stigma. Um, so, you know, it's inclusive, in, or the numbers have risen, I think, trifold over the course of the last 30 years. Yeah, and you've laid out some of the reasons that could be driving it. Interestingly, 
I think like the 31% figure maybe of U.S. adults who identify generally as single, that you looked at when you break it down by race or age, for example, that there are actually really striking differences. Can you talk a little bit about those differences? While it's 31% generally, how does it break down, say, if you're Black and single? Yeah, so 47% of Black adults are single compared to 28% of white adults and 27% of Hispanic adults. And then also 47% of adults who identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual are single compared to 29% of straight adults. And, you know, looking at that, that number of Black adults, first and foremost, like, it's not that there's like some inclinations like, oh, Black people don't like to get married as much. You have to hold that number alongside the rates of incarceration within the Black community, right, which we know are hist like historically and systematically racist about who gets incarcerated um, between races. And I think also when we look at that, that number of gay, lesbian, and bisexual people who are single, how much of that has to also do with the fact that for decades, gay, lesbian, and bisexual people couldn't necessarily live with their partner or be married to their partner, right? We, have, we are very new to nationalized marriage being an available option for gay, lesbian, and bisexual people. Uh, so I think that like breaking apart that data, what we see is that like the, the, the struggle of financially <laughs> finding stability as a single person is not neutral, right? It, it, it has uh, fault lines within that number as well. Yes. And there are a lot of people, too, who are single by choice. And I do want to just take a moment to talk about why people love being single as well. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to share a little bit about what you uncovered in that lane? Yeah. You know, I talked to I heard from I did a, a survey with uh, broad expanses of of. Uh, ability to respond and kind of articulate people's different attitudes towards being single. And some people resent it, right? Some people would much rather be partnered. But I find that so many people have chosen single life with purpose, right? They enjoy, they even revel in being single. The problem is that it is also a really difficult choice to make. You know, whatever your attitude is towards the single life, it shouldn't be coupled with the fact that we effectively financially uh, penalize people who make that decision. So basically you're saying if people are choosing to be single, it isn't because U.S. policy or even our social norms have made that decision terribly easy. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, I think that like there are like songs and like various narratives of like, oh, the strong single woman. But oftentimes those narratives like every movie ends with the single person finding love in some capacity. Um, and also they never take into account just how much more difficult it is, not just to shoulder all of the expenses of a household, but also dealing with the larger structural forms of penalization in the form of social security and taxes. Yeah. And I want to dig into some of those larger policy um, norms or policies that we have uh, in the U.S., but before I do, you, you just said something that was kind of interesting to me where you talked about the songs and the ways that we <laughs> celebrate being single. Um, and you also do make the point of saying that we're not necessarily hostile to all singles, uh, but that the, the sort of um, group of people who are allowably single is more narrow than you think. Can you yes. talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think that 
We are definitely okay. Just generally, I'm, I'm speaking in broad stereotypes here, just to be clear with like young men being single. It's like, oh, they're figuring out their lives. Like they're enjoying their youth. Whereas I think younger women are oftentimes conceived of as like marriage material just waiting to be realized right <laughs> that like somehow they're just like always on a quest to figure out that that partnership scenario i also think that single dads are venerated and honored in ways that are uh, uh almost on the level of like beatification like they're saints um and single moms too i think are, are oftentimes honored and celebrated but they have to be single moms whose entire lives are funneled into their children. That's mm -hmm. the only way that it is okay that they are not seeking a, a partner. We're talking with Anne Helen Peterson, a culture writer whose recent article for The Goods by Vox is titled The Escalating Costs of Being Single in America. Uh, also co-author of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation and co-author of a new book, Out of Office. You've been very busy at Helen <laughs> Peterson, I know. Um, but I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. Are you single? How would you describe the benefits and the costs? Do you think life in this country is hostile to single people? Why or why not? And, and I chose that word hostile because actually it's a word that you use. Do you feel like in some ways, Anne Helen Peterson, that that you know being single that this country is hostile to single people in some ways and so um can you just explain why why you chose the word hostile to describe it yeah you know i think i was thinking of the word hostile in terms of how we describe an environment right a climate so if we think of a hostile climate whether it's the, the arctic or the desert it means that it's harder for for life to thrive in that place. Mm. And I think that the way that we have arranged society and civilization, particularly in the United States, and a lot of other countries as well, but the focus of my piece is on the US, it is structurally hostile to single people. So even as we've become more morally accepting of people who've chosen to, to lead a single life or people who are forced into a single life through divorce or, or widowhood, um, it's still, it's just a lot harder, right? And mm -hmm. the thing is, is it doesn't have to be this way. Like this is uh, the result of policy choices in a lot of ways. So listeners, what do you think? Do you agree? 866-733-6786 uh, is the number. 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And we did ask some of our listeners ahead of you coming on and Helen Peterson to, to share their thoughts about being single in America. Amanda writes on Instagram, having no other person with an income to help split the rent, the utilities, or any of the normal household bills that you have to pay one way or the other is incredibly financially straining. I don't have the luxury of choosing which of us has the better medical insurance to use, for example. There's no tax breaks for trying to keep yourself afloat alone. You have to make $70,000 a year in San Francisco to prove you can afford an $1,800 studio. That would be a lot easier to reach if there were two people to equal that income. My only choice is a roommate. Amanda's comment reminds me of the person named Amelia that you interviewed, um, and Helen, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how even the roommate thing is really challenging. Yeah, I, I just think that like we don't have a lot of ideas, like our imagination for how to organize life in the United States is really 
uh, underpinned with this expectation that everyone should be able to pay for a single apartment, right? Or a single living space or a single house um, that, that is, they've shouldered the bill for all their own. And, you know, if you look back historically to the beginning of the 20th century before that, like there were tons of boarding houses, right? And these boarding houses and uh, sometimes they were thought of as like, uh, like women's hotels and this sort of thing. They were just ways to organize life that was affordable for a single person. So maybe you had your own space, right? You had your own room, but then meals were more communal or um, bathing spaces were more communal. And I think that now like we've become like this ideal of the single living space, like separated living space has become so idealized and so normalized that thinking that way is seems really strange, but you know, it's, it's just not working. And, but if there aren't these opportunities for other people, if there aren't these scenarios open or even imaginable, then people are just going to start, keep continuing to shoulder those expenses themselves. And it, as anyone who has tried to find a roommate <laughs> as an adult, as a post-college adult, as someone over 30, it is really hard to find someone with whom you are completely compatible and want to share all of your spaces with. It's really hard. Well, Vanessa writes, being single is terribly expensive, impossible to meet anyone because of the apps. Men just want to keep sleeping around and looking for the next thing. There's no loyalty or reason to invest in anyone. It's very hard financially to live in the Bay single. We're hearing your thoughts about being single. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the escalating costs of being single in the U.S. that Anne Helen Peterson wrote about in a recent piece for The Goods by Vox, which is, in, which is titled The Escalating Costs of Being Single in America. Anne Helen Peterson is also co-author of the new book, Out of Office. And you, our listeners, are welcome to join with your thoughts. How would you describe the costs or benefits of being single? Do you think life in this country is hostile to single people? Why or why not? Is there a social norm or policy that's made your single status more challenging? 866-733-6786 is the number. The email address, forum at kqed.org. Reach us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. So you mentioned sort of policy issues or policy antagonisms, I think, as as you describe them um, against single people. And talk a little bit about the tax code. That was one of the things that you really honed in on in your piece and how it really is at a stage now where married people do benefit a lot more than than single people. 
This is really complicated. And I want to be very <laughs> clear. <it> simple. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be very clear that I am not a tax scholar. I have read the work of other tax scholars. Um, but I think that the, the main thing to understand is that there is a like the amount of tax, it depends on how much money you are making. So what income bracket that you are in. But right now, American, like the, the tax code is still weighted towards a certain type of partnership. And that is a partnership of one large earner and one lesser earner or non-existent earner. Um, and what that means is that like, it's still arranged as if we live in 1950, a middle-class family where one person is working outside of the home and the other person is, is not working outside of the home. And so there is a marriage penalty to some extent still like this has changed some with the tax revisions to the tax code. If you have two high earners who are married, like there is still some penalty for those earners, but there's also uh, you just, the percentage of taxes that someone pays if they are living by themselves, file a single is significant. Um, and it's just part of this larger cluster of policies that like accumulate together to like, there's been some calculations about like the amount of money, more money that uh, a single person would pay over the course of their lives. Right. And it's like up to a million dollars more that a single person pays in taxes, but also like it, in lack of social security benefits and in other things that they have to pay for simply because they are single. That's not neutral, right? That's, that's, that's a real penalty. Yeah. Well, I think I want to talk about social security benefits. Uh, before that, though, I want to read Michael's tweet. Michael tweets, it's tough to be single in the Bay Area. A divorced woman I work with, I worked with, let her ex-husband stay over the garage because they could not afford to live separately. Um, there's there's definitely that with in terms of high housing costs and so on. But I was struck by your description of how essentially you're penalized for becoming single after you're married, especially under social security. Can you can you just talk a little bit about how that plays out, how it sort of disincentivizes people who may not want to be together from getting divorced and hits harder usually on women just because their incomes tend to be lower than men's? Again, this is complicated. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I think that most, if you are someone who has started to calculate your social security, or if you are already on social security, you know this, you know that women get less just generally because what your social security is drawing on is a, your personal, like a history of your earnings and women make less than men statistically, right? So you're going to have less, but let's say you get divorced. And if you're married for 10 years, you can either draw on half of your ex-husband's benefit, or you can draw on your own. And it's still like, <laughs> oftentimes an ex-husband's half benefit is larger than whatever the woman's would have been. And this is particularly true for any women who would have stayed at home with their kids, right? Would have taken time out of the workforce in order to care for children. And for women who have never been in the workforce full-time, it can be devastating to like, you still have that half benefit, but you don't have, you know, you don't even have a choice between that and your own benefit. 
Um, well, there are a couple of people writing in who are also sharing what they like about being single. And Mar Mario writes on Instagram, being single means peace of mind. Sean writes, being single with a roommate is the best of both worlds. We split the utilities and casually talk with each other at the end of the day. Plus, his rent payment is always welcome at the beginning of the month. This listener writes on Instagram, a serious cost to being single is time. I have to do everything myself. I can't share some responsibilities with a partner. Take cooking, for example. With a partner, you could cook every other night and have half your nights not having to cook. Also, executive function. I have to make every single decision about everything I do myself. Once in a while, it would be nice to have someone else suggest a plan. It's stressful to always have to be on top of everything. I hadn't really thought about the time cost, but it makes so much sense when this listener describes it and also the description that you have of another person that you spoke with who themselves was just talking about the time spent on the phone to fix the roof or something like that or, or plan a college tour for their kid. Yeah, time is money, right? Like, <laughs> I don't mean to be so instrumental about like how we think of our time, but in some ways, the 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 taxes the the penalties that people pay as single people who are really in this country told that they need to do everything themselves you've made this decision you found yourself in this position and and so you should be responsible for everything from figuring out what to do when your car dies and and like finding a loaner or figuring out public transit or whatever to anything that goes wrong in your house to cooking every day and i think sometimes we get into this like circular discussion of like, well, you made the decision to be single, so you should be okay with bearing that cost instead of thinking about like, oh, everything in our society is organized in a way that makes it really hard to be on your own. How can we think of different ways of providing community and care and support for one another that would lessen some of that burden, that would allow people to make the decisions that they want to make about whether or not they want to be partnered with someone, but not have it be so incredibly hard. Yes. Um, and, you know, as you're talking about this too, just really thinking about how accessing benefits and, you know, so much of that is incentivizing marriage as well. And it's very hard for people who want to cohabit, especially if they're in less traditional relationships and so on. Let me go to caller Michelaine in Oakland. Hi, Michelaine. Thanks for joining. Hi, Michelaine. Are you there? Uh, well, while we try to connect with Michelaine, let me read a comment from James who writes, I've been single for 12 years and find the most challenging part for me is that it really sucks to cook for one. The process is fine, just the end product is much less satisfying. Let me see if we can get uh, Michelaine back. Michelaine, are you there? Yes, I am. And what did you want to share? Well, you know, your guests, I really appreciate the conversation because being penalized for being single is never more apparent than in travel. You can get a single seat on a plane, but oftentimes the accommodations are always double occupancy, mm. and you're penalized for being single with a single supplement, which often is hundreds of dollars more than if you had somebody else in the room. So I think that's one of the more blatant issues with being single. Mm. Micheline, the air. Yeah, Micheline, and what do you think? Oh, I heard this from so many people and it is so real. Like if you're a single person 
that doesn't mean that you have any more or less desire to see the world or to uh, go visit family or friends. And if there's just very few accommodations in that capacity, I oftentimes think too, just like how that fact makes it so that a lot of places that you go, you don't see as many single people, right? It's disincentivized to be single on vacation. It's It sticks out as something that's weird when it shouldn't be at all, right? You shouldn't have to go on a cruise just for singles or go on a, a hiking trip just for singles in order to find accommodations for yourself. We should have much more equitable understandings of like, what travel can look like. And this isn't like some sort of niche accommodation. We're talking about, you know, nearly 30 to 40% of the United States population that is unpartnered. We're talking with Anne Helen Peterson, a culture writer whose recent article for The Goods by Vox is titled The Escalating Costs of Being Single in America. And you are joining our conversation with your thoughts at 866-733-6786, posting them on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum, emailing us forum at kqed.org. How would you describe the costs or the benefits of being single? What are social norms or policies? As we're hearing many, we're hearing many come up that's made your single status more challenging or that you wish would change. Jenny writes, I'm a 36-year-old single and childless woman living in the Bay Area with my family because of the high cost of living in the area. I work for the state of California, and for all the talk our governor has spoke about California for all, even his state workers have a hard time making a living. I'm not looking to be partnered or married at any point in the future. All I want is to have a simple one to two bedroom home and a cat. But it seems like in this country, in this state in particular, that is asking for too much. There isn't much help for those looking to buy a home who are single and have no kids. Yes, there were uh, people that you spoke with and who are living with their families or, or their parents because that's the only way that they can really make this work. And, and so few who really were able to have savings if they did not build up a right. savings if they did not or liquidated their savings in order to the make the gamble in order to get into the housing market i spoke with someone who's a teacher uh here in washington state and she you know washington state because of uh labor negotiations that sort of thing they make a pretty good salary um but she still after a divorce in order to to buy a home in bellingham had to liquidate her, liquidate her 401k and then also get a small loan from her parents in order to put a down payment on a small home and i think that that's the reality right you're like oh if you want to have this sort of stability that a home can give you then you have to sacrifice this other form of stability in the form of your retirement and that's a devil's bargain right totally uh, let me go to Albert in Rio Vista. Hi, Albert. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Albert. Are you there? I think we're still having maybe just a touch of an issue with our phone lines. Albert, hang on and we'll see if we can get you back. Vicky writes, we need to stop privileging people based on their sexual romantic life and start privileging and supporting caregiving. We all give and need care at certain points of our life. Also, many women, coupled or not, will end up being single later in life. The average age of widowhood is 59. All women must plan to live solo whether they want to or not. This was interesting that you did find that the average age of women um, being widowed is much lower than it is for men or the occurrence is much higher for women than it is for men. 
Yeah. So what is most common when you break down the stats is that men are single earlier in their lives and then stay partnered or married as they age. And whether that means that maybe they stay partnered or married their entire lives or they get divorced and then they get married or partnered again. And I think, again, to be very stereotypical and and talking about heterosexual males in particular, there's an understanding that they're like, well, I need someone to take care of me. <laughs> so I'm going to find refind a partner. Whereas women oftentimes get married younger, maybe to older men, but get married younger. And then the tendency is either because their husbands die or they get divorced and then do not get remarried. And some of this too has to do with the fact that oftentimes older men marry younger women. You just have a a larger cluster of women, older women who are single, either widowed or divorced or have been single their entire lives. And you couple that with the fact that they're also getting the statistically smaller social security payment because of the wage gap. And you really do have a a crisis of, of elder care and just care in general of single people who do not have a partner to help bear the costs of of living or to help bear the costs of of taking care of one another. Well, one of the things I was curious about was whether you found places that, that did do a good job of creating supports, a safety net for people who are single. I wish that I did. I mean, I I oftentimes think of places that are trying to create something that's much more like a quasi-commune. And I don't mean like the stereotypical understanding of what a commune is, where it's more like a cult, right? We're thinking more in terms of um, smaller cooperatives, right? Smaller apartment buildings where people are providing networks of support for one another. Um, And it's usually, you know, smaller apartment buildings that are doing this. I think too, sometimes I think there's this great story in the New York Times from earlier this year, where uh, a, a group of three people who were in a polyamorous relationship, they, it was ostensibly a story about like creating spaces to age in place, creating a means so that you can stay in your home as you age. And this group of three was able to uh, create this beautiful space for themselves to age in place. And part of the reason they were able to do it is because they had brought together three retirement incomes. <laughs> and so sometimes I'm like, oh, well, what, what would that look like, right? If not necessarily in a polyamorous relationship, but what if, you know, a group of, of single people came together to create this space that would work for them? Yeah. And oftentimes I think people say like, I wanna live like the golden girls when I get older. Why is that an impossibility? It like that should actually be not just aspirational, but possible. Well, there's a snow writes on Instagram. I love, love, love being single, exploring the polyamorous life. All my friends envy me. Just a, a note on, on that. <laughs> but but I think the bigger point that you're getting at is that if we did support people who are in non-traditional relationships, I hate I don't know, I hate using that word, but let's just use it because I think people understand what I mean when I say that, that you, that there's a reimagining that can take place that we're not really allowing for. Yeah, absolutely. I think even the fact that like, we don't have really good language to describe these different sort of groupings, right? Like the fact that I was just struggling to articulate the type of group or that you were like non-traditional, right? Like what if traditional was also all of these different types of 
possibilities of, of what we could, what life could look like. I, yeah, I just think that we're so focused on this very traditional understanding of a couple that stays married forever when like, why are we venerating this? A lot of people who stay married forever simply for financial means or financial stability are deeply miserable. Well, the listener writes, I was single for my entire life until I was married at the age of 60. However, I felt like I had been married about three times before that. And I agree, every area you have mentioned is discriminatory towards single people. I was not interested in getting married to alleviate this, but I was interested in a long-term relationship. I supported myself in every way, but I still wanted a loving relationship. Now that I am married, I miss the complete freedom and the ability to only take my own preferences into consideration. <laughs> um, there is that sense that you have more freedom if you are single. But I think what I was struck by is if you have a weak safety net, freedom is a really tenuous thing. Like, for example, you would say that people would feel pressure either to stay in bad relationships or stay in bad jobs. Yeah, I, I think that sometimes... So let, let me put it this way. Financial precarity locks us in situations that we would otherwise not want to be in, right? So if I, that can mean financial precarity that stems from uh, being in uh, an industry that is low paying, but it can also stem from being a single person. And that means that you stay in relationships that you don't want to be in. And it also means that you don't take risks in your job as well. Well, we'll have more with Anne Helen Peterson and you, our listeners, about being single, the costs and the benefits. After the break, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the social norms and policies that have made being single more challenging in this country. And you, our listeners, are welcome to share your thoughts about that. 866-733-6786. And let me go to Albert in Rio Vista. Albert, thanks so much for waiting. Hi, Albert. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, yeah, thank you for uh, having me on. Uh, it's a really interesting discussion, and you've actually addressed some of the issues I was talking about which is being single and aging, especially when you get to end-of-life issues like the onset of dementia. Uh, Also, I'm thinking in the pandemic of uh, all the people who uh, 
may have become sick with COVID and then issues of getting to the hospital and care and all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And so you've dealt with much of that. But that's an that's that's a real issue with you know with and in marriage, you know you talk about people staying together. Well, there there are obligations you know, besides love. There's the obligations and 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 the different kinds of expression of that that are there and that aren't there when you're single. I mean, you you don't have the people that are kind of obligated to help you out. Well, Albert, thank you for bringing that into the conversation and, and for the reminders. Let me go next to Laura in San Mateo. Hi, Laura. Yeah, hi. This is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. I could, I could go on and on about this, um, having been a single person for four decades as as an uh, adult, um, I could make many points, but if I can just make three quickly. One is Social Security has a death benefit for single, for married people and people with um, dependents. They have no death benefit for single people, which I think is discrimination. Mm. The second thing I will say is that the design of housing in California is ridiculous and it has been for ever. Builders are besotted with giant monoliths, and they don't design houses for people who neither need nor want more than 900 or so square feet. And then yeah. the third point I'll make is your, your guest was talking a little bit before about communities. I do not know in this country why we don't, particularly in the West Coast, there are some what we call intergenerational communities in the Midwest and in the East where single people can have a private life, but it doesn't mean that they don't want to or are not interested in contributing to others in the community. For example, I would love to live in an intergenerational community with a private living space, but help young families with childcare and other time and cost pressures in some sort of reciprocal relationship. I just don't know why we're not on the ball with this sort of thing. It's way past due. So thank you so much for this program. I really appreciate it. Well, Laura, thank you. And, and well, first your response to, to Laura, um, and then I just have a quick follow-up too, but what she's describing oh, I, here. I really appreciate the comments from Laura and also from Albert before. You know, I think that... Uh, our structures of care in the United States, and this is something that I've written about before as part of this larger Vox series with focus on elder care and also on child care. There's this understanding that we should rely on familial obligations, whether it's through partnership or through our own children or through our parents to take care of each other, right? That the, the responsibility for organizing care should fall on the family unit. And within that understanding, there's no space for people who don't have a family unit, right? Like we do not have a, a plan for people who are unpartnered and people who are don't have children to take care of their, their elder care needs. I mean, we have the, <laughs> the threadbare remnants of the social safety nets that we've constructed in the form of social security and Medicare and some other programs, but like, it really is supposed to fall down to like, oh, well, there's not enough money to cover that. Like rely on your family. 
And who does that leave falling through the social safety net? It leaves single people and people without children. I think interestingly to what these comments are, are touching on is that we really in many ways almost need a paradigm shift in the way that we think about things because we have structured, like even housing is, as Laura is describing, so much around a certain view in our own minds um, of what we're building for. There was a, a country, Denmark, that you described as a place where single populations thrive. Do you have a couple examples of what Denmark does differently or how, how they think differently about single life? <laughs> Yeah, I think that like they just the way that society is organized is is much less pathological or it path pathologizes singlehood less and also single motherhood. They draw on research that shows that, you know, a lot of our understandings of like, oh, it's so much better for parent for kids to have two parents. That understanding is almost always based on the fact that especially in the United States, in a family that only has one parent, there's oftentimes more precarity. There's more financial precarity. There are less systems of care and social safety nets in place that make that child rearing experience more like easier. And so what they do in Denmark is they make it easy to be a single parent. And they do that through systems like, you know, um, very well subsidized and accessible and affordable childcare. But they also do it by providing um, IVF to all women, I think three rounds of IVF to women under 40. And so what that means is that you do not have to be dependent on a partner in order to have a baby, right? Um, you can choose to, to go that route yourself. And part of that, that's, that program was put in place, I think, in part to counter falling birth rates. And that's something, you know, this is a whole nother can of worms, but like people are very upset about declining birth rates in the United States. Well, we have made it very hostile for single people, this growing population of single people to have children in this country. Well, Nicole writes, queer and trans people have paved the way for creating family support networks and housing outside of the institution of marriage for centuries. Having a conversation about the challenges of being single without centering the wisdom of LGBTQIA people greatly limits this conversation. I love this point because it is so true as I'm talking to you about paradigm shifts and, and ways of thinking. It's true in many ways, we're responding to the existing systems, right? Like we're looking at what is as opposed to really being able to think about what can be and, and what is possible when you really do change um, the center that you're responding to. Yeah, and this is actually, I, I wanna make clear that that commenter is, absolutely correct. And it is a, a part of uh, the piece that we have not talked about yet, but it is in the piece that there's a whole lot that straight white single people can learn from past and present work in queer communities, in the black power movement, and in immigrant communities where mutual aid has been like at the, at the nucleus of the way that community has been organized and sustained for so long. This, this understanding of the nuclear family in their small home, like that as the ideal that we hold up, that is, you know, that is white capitalist culture right there. And there's this point that you say, where you ask the question, what would it look like to create small systems of care for one another that go beyond one other individual? And so talk about what you mean by that, why, why you posed that question and what drove it. You know, I think a lot of the despair that I hear from single single people is that 
we seem to venerate individualism in this country as like the trait that we should aspire to above all else, right? The power of the individual to do whatever, do to whatever they want. And yet we actually venerate the individual family. And there are so few routes to a sustainable, powerful, meaningful life if you're always worried about this larger precarity. And I, you know, as a counterexample, because I think sometimes like you can say something like, how can we imagine these different communities of care? And it it seems just theoretical. It seems utopian in some way. But right now, um, there is a group putting together these groups of four or six people that are forming like basically like a, a community of care for disabled people in Seattle. And so some of those people are other disabled people that are working with them. And some are people who are able-bodied, but it's essentially a small social safety net. And what does that look like when you have this group of people that you can rely on in any situation? Like, this is possible. We can do this. And what if it's not just dependent on some person organizing in your city? What if we also think of policy measures that make this um, more possible. And that could include something like being able to put a like a, a member of kin and not just like blood kin, but someone who is your partner in life that's not necessarily romantic or your partner in this moment on health insurance. Or what if we decouple health insurance from employment altogether? These are not that radical of ideas. Right. And Joanna writes, what's wrong with living with family as an adult? In so many cultures, families living and working and saving together is how they build generational wealth. We need to end the compulsion adults feel to live on their own. It's also ecologically unsustainable for every single person to live on their own. I don't think you're saying that there's anything wrong with it. And in fact, you're saying family in all senses of that word, if it can also include people that you're not necessarily related to and still be able to derive benefits is an important thing. Yes, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with living with family. There's nothing wrong with living with other people or with having roommates or with not, you know, with sharing bathrooms in a shared living space. Like, but we, I think, oftentimes think of people who are in those situations as less mature, less advanced, less uh, like dating material. When, if anything, they are showing that they can be committed and compassionate and live with other people. And Helen Peterson's piece, The Goods in, on the Goods by Vox, is titled The Escalating Costs of Being Single in America. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Mark in Oakland. Hi, Mark. Hi, guys. So, listen, this comment sort of piggybacks really well on what was just said recently. Uh, I'm a home health and hospice nurse from Crossroads in Oakland, and I see a lot of discrimination against uh, single people, both older and younger. For example, when you have a minor procedure or a minor medical event and you, you know, for example, you can't leave the hospital unless you have somebody who's going to sign that they're responsible for you. And I'd like to sort of encourage people, even, you know, 40-year-olds who work out and keep a good diet, I'd like everyone to think about their their network, their friends, like the queer community did, especially during the AIDS crisis. I'd like people to think about who could help me. What if I, you know, what if I broke my shoulder and I needed help getting to the bathroom three times a day and just make that pact with 
whoever is in your life or create those people in your life because there are a lot of hospitalizations and, and rehab admissions and skilled nursing admissions that wouldn't happen if you just had made that pact that, you know, not necessarily a life-ending illness, but, you know, like I said, like a broken shoulder. I just make a pact with a friend. You know, if anything ever goes wrong, I really mean this. I'm really there for you. I'll take a le- And that also includes some legal stuff, uh, getting employers to give uh, FMLA for a caregiver who's not a blood relative. So I, I'm really thrilled for this conversation. I'd like to keep people out of the hospital if I can. Thanks, Mark. I like that point. Let's go next to Sevi in Alameda. Hi, Sevi. Hi. Um, I wanted to talk about I'm a person living with disabilities, and I have professional caretakers that help with physical care. I have chronic pain, but it occurred to me that everybody needs emotional care, and even non-disabled people, and I'm also single. And like, for example, I was, um, my wrists are in a lot of pain today. And I asked my caretaker, I said, look, I'm really having a difficult time today. I want to journal and I can't do that. And she said, she suggested to me, oh, like, have you tried, do you have a voice recorder app on your phone so you could do it without using your hands? And I thanked her. I said, thank you so much for suggesting that. And I remembered it and I got to do my journaling. And it's like that type of support is so meaningful and it's like non-disabled people need that type of support. We all need somebody that can, you know, that we can go to that can be like, hey, I'm having a problem. And then if you offer, that the other person would offer a suggestion and would, you know, help and support them in kind of um, getting a, finding a solution. Mm-hmm. Well, Sevi, thanks. I appreciate the call. Thank and you. Peters, I'm not sure if you have any reactions to to the last two that we got. I love those comments. They puzzle piece so well together, too. And they're just part of my larger thinking. You know, when I so this Vox piece is part of a larger series about the the engines of economic precarity for so many in the United States. And, you know, whether it's child care or elder care or being single, a lot of them come down to this fact that, like, we have forgotten how to to knit these these connections with one another. And some of it is that obsession with individualism, right? Of that that fo- focus just on me and mine and what that that small family. And some of it too is I think uh, the the feeling that we're working too hard to to really invest in other people in our community or we're spending so much time parenting, right? Like the the expectations of parenting have gone up so much. But the pandemic, I think, has highlighted our need for other people outside of our immediate families. And so I hope that we can use this as an opportunity to really think about the ways that we can contribute to and participate in and reach out to other people in our lives. I I also want to note that there is great data about how single people actually have the highest level of participation and volunteerism in their communities. And single people are doing the work, right? We are trying to reach out and to to create these, these bonds with one another. And I hope that people who aren't single can also understand the need for this. Let me go to Autumn in Washington State. Hi, Autumn. Hi, and thank you for taking my, the call. Um, fascinating conversation. Um, I am single. 
Um, but I've you know, heard several times people saying, if only there were a model where I could have a small place and in a community that supports one another. And I just want to make everyone aware that there is such a model that came out of Denmark. It's called co-housing. There are probably 100 co-housing communities in the United States. One of them advertises on KQED, Washington Commons, and Sacramento, currently looking for people who want to explore such a model. And if you go to cohousing.org, you can find a list of all of those communities that exist or are in development. Um, it's a very tough thing to pull a whole co-housing community together. Um, each person has their own unit, you know, but they're shared responsibilities, self-run, et cetera. But anyway, go, I really recommend going to the cohousing.org website to learn more about cohousing and to also consider how policy can support new forms of housing that are more mutually supportive. Autumn, thanks. Do you see us moving in this direction at last, Anne Helen Peterson? I oscillate between being so optimistic about it, and I love that the caller brought up co-housing. I have read about and know about um, lots of very successful uh, instances of this in the United States, and I think one of the problems right now is a lot of co-housing opportunities are still cost prohibitive, and I hope that we can consider how we can make them less cost prohibitive for more people, right? Like this is something that should be an option and to create the sort of multi-generational communities of care that a previous caller was talking about as well. But then I also think about the housing market and how we are still obsessed with the single family home. So I hope that this has at least given us some food for thought. Well, you've certainly given me food for thought about the high price of, of being single. And Helen Peterson, thanks so much. Thank you, this is a real pleasure. And thanks to our listeners for their questions, comments, feedback. Really appreciate it. Thanks to Ariana Prail for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? 
The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast.